I think that this big social experiment that we're going through, the findings and the learnings will still come back to community and connection and humanity and empathy. When it comes to the role that place plays in our lives, there are very few on the planet that have spent more time and effort explaining it than Cheryl Durst. Cheryl is the CEO of the International Interior Design Association and is widely regarded as one of the design world's wittiest and wisest personalities. We caught up with Cheryl on a call from her home in April, where she opens up about her childhood, what brings her comfort in life, and what might be next for the spaces we design. I'm good, right? I, I feel super blessed that everybody in the family is healthy and um, everybody at IIDA headquarters is healthy. Um, we're all busy. I think we're navigating place right now. Um, on the professional side, I think we were all fortunate as a team, as IIDA headquarters, because when we did our construction and relocation, we all worked remotely for six weeks. So like we've got muscle memory of what it means to work from home. So it wasn't that big of a curve to have to kind of shift ramping up to it. But we started very early before a lot of businesses closed um, because people with families, we had a couple of pregnant women, all of us take public transportation. And so I was very concerned about just exposure early on and you could kind of see what was coming. So we closed down probably about a week before a lot of offices did. Um, but every night leading up to that, we were sending everybody home with their laptop just in case they got that text to say, do not come in today. So I felt that we were prepared on that end. From a personal side, Gabe came home, so he's at RISD, and so, you know, now we've got third-year RISD happening in, in the home, these online classes. Um, so we had to really, like this in theory was our empty nester house, and so we've been kind of carving out our space. And so I've called dibs on the dining room table, so that's become IIDA headquarters for me, we've got some, Troy's got a home office and then Gabe, luckily we had to do some, make some changes to his room, invest in a couple of monitors. So class is happening for him. Annabelle is still working for Netflix and is busy because Netflix. So um, right. she, she's, she's living and working in uh, Santa Fe. So the three of us and two dogs are, are making it happen here. And the dogs are probably calling dibs also. <laughs> Trying to figure that out. I mean, they're probably like, why are you people home? What's going on? <laughs> your way of talking about place, uh, your way of kind of understanding place uh, is very unique. And so I want to just understand, is there a place you go to in your younger mm -hmm. years, do you close your eyes and go somewhere? That's, that's, I love that question, Doug, because um, you know I'm just, I'm a place junkie and I believe that sense of place is just necessary and fundamental to who we are as human beings. And so that exercise of closing your eyes and going to, and I don't even, I, I don't even always call it a happy place. I call it your comfort place. And my dad was an educator and my mother was a scientist. And I went to Catholic school. And I, 
this will sound like the ultimate nerdy answer, but my favorite places are classrooms, libraries, and laboratories. And all three of those places have distinct smells and a distinct vibe for me that all signify comfort and sanctuary and oasis and learning. And um, so I identify with those really heavily. And so I am, my place is happiest when I'm surrounded by books and artifacts and things um, that have deep relevant meaning. I don't think it has anything to do with being a minimalist or a maximalist. Um, there certainly is that woman who is all about the organizing, Marie Kondo, and she said, you should only keep around you the things that bring you joy. Some of us have more joyful things than others. Um, and collecting things, right, I call that essential ephemera. And whatever it is, whether it's a rock or a globe or a photograph, those things bring us comfort. There are touchstones. And so I think back when we used to travel, I, I have discovered that there are people who keep certain things with them when they travel that they like to put on the nightstand in a hotel room. It reminds you of who you are and where you're from. So when when did you know that place was important to you? Was it was this like a, a childhood thing or something that came later in life? I, I think it was very much a childhood thing. Um, I was an only child. And so I spent a lot of time solo or with my imaginary friends. And I would set up camp. Um, so my pillow fort um, that I think everybody has some version of a pillow fort. So we had floor to ceiling bookcases um, in the house that I grew up in. And my fort was always built against those bookcases. And so flashlight, bookcases, a super comfortable pillow and blanket, and I, I was in the zone. I could not have been happier. And so I, I, then I found that I always like to replicate that feeling of being surrounded by comfort. Like I've always had a fascination with small spaces, tiny homes that are incredibly efficient, we had an RV when our kids were growing up and it's like I loved the fact that you could be mobile in this incredibly efficient space that could take you from point A to point B or one national park to the other. And so this idea of compact comfort is really fascinating for me. I love that. Compact comfort. And portable, right? You should be able to carry your comfort with you. Yes. Or walk it on a leash. Yeah, or walk it off. That's very true. That's very true. Already in this conversation, I think you've probably mentioned the word book, you know, oh. 12 times. So I guess yeah. there's a special place in your heart for books. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, you know, and, and books are a phenomenal means of um, escape. Um, they obviously are, for me, a book is an object of desire. I love how books look. Um, on a shelf. Um, I love the feel of them. I love the smell of books. There's a candle. There's now a candle that you can get that's bookstore scented or book scented. And it, you know, a book can transport you to so many different places. And again, I'll go back to that word I used before. Also, a book is a touchstone, right? It's a reminder of 
who we are and what we love. It's their reminders of culture. Um, and that's why I think I'm so drawn to libraries too, because that's, you know, that's kind of the ultimate repository. Um, a library is like church to me. It has that same very special feeling. I had a colleague once tell me, there is one place where we will always be, and that is in our minds. So yes, Cheryl, a book certainly can transport us and can also help stretch our sense of place. Cheryl took us back in time to another place that still shapes her point of view today. While living in DC, I volunteered for the Smithsonian Museum. And I volunteered at the Hirshhorn Museum, which is the contemporary art collection, um, the Sackler Gallery, which is the Asian art collection, and then the Museum of African Art. And so those three museums, I would spend my Saturdays as a docent. And before I ended up doing this IIDA thing, I honestly, by my love for museums and education, I wanted to manage a museum education program. So when I moved to DC after college, I went to school in Boston, moved to DC, there was a recession going on, so there really were no jobs, and so I ended up as a substitute teacher. I substituted for a teacher who was out with the flu, and it turned out she was out with the flu for four years. And one of the first things that I did with my kids, I, was, I had a ninth grade homeroom, and I was a to find out that living in DC with with the 12 Smithsonian museums within two miles most of my class regardless of their economic status most of them had never been to one of the Smithsonian museums if they had it was probably air and space or natural history and so I took great joy in taking the taking my students to those museums and it was as much about the collection, what was in those museums, as it was what I learned, like retrospectively thinking about it, navigating the space and the place of a museum. How do people wander through a museum? Do they, you know, do they look at the art or do they sit and contemplate? And it was really interesting for me to involve my students in that process. And people feel and experience art very differently, and people feel and experience a museum very differently. And I think that for me was, I still use lessons learned in navigating from point A to point B and talking about place. And I often reflect on what I learned in watching people in museums as a docent and as a teacher. Something unique about Cheryl here stood out to me. She really knows herself, and she's clearly taken the time in her life to get to this rare place of understanding. We all have these touchstones or places that have shaped our thinking or bring us comfort, but so often the significance of these artifacts and experiences in our lives can feel just beyond our grasp. The difference in Cheryl is that she's taken the time in her life to reflect. And it sounds simple, but in today's busy world, Reflection can be often too easily replaced with other, more urgent, but perhaps less important activities. Let's just talk about IIDA. Let's talk about, do you ever, do you ever wake up and pinch yourself and say, 
oh my gosh, I, I can't believe I'm doing what I'm doing. I, uh, almost every morning, it's, um, it's such an incredible collection of people. And the fact that I have access to, first of all, just the community of designers, right? There's a whole vibe in the design community. Um, it's almost tangible. You, you feel the connections that people have. And I tie that directly to it's a profession where people are passionate about what they're doing, right? There are some professions where people are passionate about who they are, but I think designers are passionate about what they do for others. Um, and so the fact that I get to be so immersed in this world seven days a week, um, because I would be kidding if I said it was Monday through Friday, because it's all the time, um, that immersion is something that has been really important to me. And then just the, the people that populate our community um, are incredible, that populate the IIDA chapters across the globe, and then around the board tables, which, you know, you're such a valued member of our international board of directors. But for 20 plus years, I've had iterations of that board in all of those chapters and in all of my travels, just such an intriguing, vital community that is so invested in human beings and culture and behavior um, and what the physical space can do to support that. What's changed in the last 10 years inside IIDA that maybe is reflective of, of the whole industry that, that you're most proud of? I think at, all of us want to articulate adequately and coherently articulate the value of design. And there's no one way to do that. And you can do that with research. You can do that with strong narrative and editorial. You can do that through incredible people who are spokesperson spokespeople for the industry. Um, and I'm, what I'm glad to say is that we've invested in the diversity of thought. So it's not been just one thing. I think once upon a time, back in the late 80s, early 90s, organizations were let's, talking about let's do this one thing. I think that IIDA has been very responsible in being judicious about the way that we talk about value, but investing in um, research and publishing and programming that brings value to the organization and to our members. Part of the role of any association is to look out for the health and advancement of their industry as a whole. A key component to this is diversity, something Cheryl has helped China spotlight on in the world of interior design. It's been talked about for two or three decades and businesses though I think became more aware of their lack of representation and lack of diversity. I think it took that bit of extra time for the design professions to realize it and I think there was the assumption that we as a profession believed what other people believed about us that we were a diverse profession because design is open, it's liberal, and therefore it must be diverse, but the therefore ended up not being true. And so a lot of our work early on was just awareness that, hey, let's take a look at ourselves. And very anecdotally, we could see that we just weren't measuring up to the work that was being done by other professions, engineering, architecture. And so it, it started very simply, I think, and organically. And I think that it made it 
uh, and you'll understand this when I say it, I think it made it easier. We didn't shove anything down anybody's throat and say, we must do this now. It started as a conversation. It started in a very comfortable place that absolutely leads us to be uncomfortable because that's what that conversation around equity and uh, inclusion and diversity, it is uncomfortable. It forces us to, to see and face some uncomfortable things about ourselves and our profession. But again, I we didn't hit anybody over the head with it. And I think because we started it as a conversation and then that work progressed into how to have a conversation the work that we're doing now is quantitative. It's around metrics and it's around numbers because in order to have a, you know, a true conversation about it, that you take it beyond emotional and take it into the intellectual side and then the action side, we need to know what we're confronting, what we're dealing with. And we have to see some actual numbers um, because the numbers will tell us what success looks like. So we're in that mode now of doing that research and us assessing assessing IIDA and the interior design profession and looking at actual numbers. And the good news is all the while we're doing this assessment, things are getting better. We're seeing more people of color enrolled in design programs, more people of color being employed in our profession. So that, that's the good part of this, but we're not finished. We went on to discuss the strong sense of community in the design profession. Doug, it's so amazing that, you know, it, on one hand, it, it makes me incredibly sad that it's taken this awful virus to remind us that um, community is utmost, that community is important, that we crave it, right? I feel like every Zoom call I've been on, um, every webinar, that it starts with, how are you doing? And not like a bullshit, how are you doing? Like we used to do, but like people really want to know how their community is doing. And then you want to be able to get the chance to tell your story of how you're doing, because I'm finding that people need to talk about this moment, right? Every ad, every narrative, every letter out there starts with in this unprecedented time. And we're living it moment to moment and we need to talk about it and it's not happening in a vacuum. This is so vastly different than anything any of us have ever lived through. And so that need to, to share it. And we're sharing it immediately with the people in our homes, but technology is giving us that chance to share it you know, with everybody that we work with. And just the technology of Zoom, we're inviting people into our homes every single day. Um, warts and all, you know, no pants and all, dogs and all, kids and all. And there's, I think that this big social experiment that we're going through, the findings and the learnings will still come back to community and connection and humanity and empathy. Those findings and learnings, as Cheryl put it, will eventually find their way into the spaces and products we design. But I was ready to hear her perspective on the short term around what might change in our expectations with space and human connection. 
Well, definitely we know um, it was very much a part of our lexicon and conversation around health and well-being. This notion of feeling safe, no matter what space it is that we're in, whether it's the, you know, your CTA, whether it's your subway, your train, your bus, getting to work or school or retail, um, we are going to be ever more cognizant of everything around us. And it's going to need to communicate cleanliness and hygiene and safety. Um, I think that's social distancing, that, that measure of six feet between human beings. I think we're going to see people being very conscious of that. And so just like you were talking about, you know, that first time we're out in the world and we see colleagues and we see friends, your immediate reaction is going to be to reach out and hug someone, but I think there will be a pulling back. Um, we're going to look for things that signal, is this place safe to convene? Um, we are going to look for technology to be more flawless than ever before, because what if we are limited to meeting in groups of 50 people? Well, there'll be another 200 people who are part of a group that you're a part of that will need whatever it is you're talking about broadcast to them. And we're going to need a flawless technology experience as well. I don't know that anything will ever replace, you know, face-to-face -face eye contact. I mean, you and I are making eye contact right now. I would much rather be in the same room with you. Um, but we're going to need to continually, from a technology standpoint, try to make that wall, that technology wall, that screen in, invisible. You, when you talked about people's heightened awareness around safety, you, at one point, you mentioned even scent and what that communicates yeah. to you. Tell me a little bit about what, what went through your head there. Yeah, so when you walk into, uh, the first thing that I thought about um, were the hotels. Um, and you know, you get these amazing, this abundance of these great smells, whether it's floral or citrusy or whatever. And I think the smell of 2021 is gonna be Febreze or Lysol. Um, it, it just signals clean or pine saw, right? There's a throwback, but it signals cleanliness. And so we'll be looking for these overt signals of cleanliness from a visual standpoint, but you know, scent, the olfactory scent is one of the most powerful. And so um, the smell of chlorine, you know, that pool smell, a hot shower smell, we're going to need a lay layers. Um, our senses will need to be layered to signal to us that a space is safe because human beings will not enter a space that they don't feel safe in. And so everything from how you enter that space, are you gonna to have to put your hands on a door handle or will you be able to automatically open that door to enter that space? Like all of those synapses are going to be firing for us um, when we get back to what's, what's next. The idea of addressing our need to feel safe through layers is a great reminder that it's our whole self that experiences space and generates a response. I think that is often why we might sometimes enter a space that just feels right, but you can't really put a finger on why. We wondered together about whether our sense of busy that we have with work from home will stay the same and how we might begin to interact 
when we get back into our office work lives. Yeah, and it makes you kind of wonder when we go back to whatever it is we're going back to, will we be less busy? Will it, you know, will it feel different? Because there's a, there's a rhythm now, right? We've all been doing this, you know, some of us for as long as six weeks, but definitely most people for four weeks at least. And you've gotten into a pattern, you've gotten into a rhythm and you just wonder in going back to the office because I think there will be this moment where we will all just catch up with one another and so lots of gathering around the hand sanitizer because I won't say water cooler it's like I just see everybody gathering around a big old Purell bottle right and kind of telling their quarantine tales it which is a you know that feels like it's a form of of therapy so we'll do that and because we may not be able to, those cafe and amenity areas may look and feel differently. And so I think we're going to rethink how we gather. What's our campfire going to be to kind of tell our, tell our communal tales? I mean, I think about our space at IIDA headquarters and, you know, we've got those, we all have adjustable height desks but we've got those communal tables, those communal standing height tables that we all kind of used to stand around for impromptu meetings or a birthday party or whatever. And is that going to be different? Will that feel different? Will we be reticent about that? Will we, will we gather differently? I don't think the quality of human interaction is going to change, but the launching pad of human interaction will change. What we will gather around. And I'm really fascinated by this redefinition of convening and gathering. I think all of us will need to invest some time in thinking about process and ritual, right? And so there's the process of getting to work, but there's also the ritual of being at work. And I think some of our essential rituals around gathering and convening and kind of hanging out, those will change. Doesn't mean they'll go away. But I think we're going to need to invest that time and just like we're going to invest time in helping people feel safe, we're going to need to invest time in helping people feel normal. So what is next for designers as they begin to process all of this? It, I mean, you know, by and large, I mean, design is about possibility and it's always about the best possibilities and designers are eternal optimists they are thinking optimists always it's not optimism based on anything that's necessarily wild-eyed i mean i think designers are very deliberate in their optimism but it's because they're constantly thinking about possibilities and we're going to need the best of that thought to help us be safe, not just feel safe, but to be safe and comfortable and productive and satisfied. So all those things we were talking about pre-COVID, healthy, happy, satisfied, productive working folks are what we all want. Um, but there will be this layer of safety and security as well that we'll just have to consider in all of this. And we're so good at being fluid and elastic and agile and resilient. Um, that's what design does and that's what human, that's what human beings do. It's what human beings expect. And I think design will really lead the charge um, in safety and comfort and humanity. I, I think the 
only thing that I would probably love to leave people with is looking at this as a learning moment, professionally and personally, a moment to take the time to appreciate the things that matter. Um, I never thought I would miss commuting to work, but I bet that first time I get on the train or in a car, I'm gonna notice everything around me. To take the time to be observant and appreciative, um, gratitude is a beautiful thing. And I think we have so much to be grateful for in our community and in our personal lives. This is a reset moment, right? It feels like a giant reset button. Um, has been hit. And I think, again, taking advantage of that reset moment to look forward. Um, nostalgia is wonderful and we can't, we can be nostalgic about 90 days ago, right? But also let's, let's walk into a more informed, healthier, safer future. While many might consider Cheryl to be more of a teacher, it's her emphasis on learning that seems to stand out more than anything. Her curiosity to understand everything at a deeper level or from a different angle seems to be a thread throughout her life. My takeaway from my time with Cheryl is that we don't have to be in school to be students. We can be students of our surroundings, of our profession, of our peers, just about anything really, even ourselves. From OFS, I'm Doug Shapiro, and you've been listening to Imagine a Place.